Good morning. Great to see all of you. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles out, if you would, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. And uh, if you're using a smartphone or other electronic device, we're using the NIV, the New International Version. Um, if you're brand new with us, hopefully, somewhere on your way in, you picked up a new here brochure. It's green. And on the inside of that uh, is a sermon application guide. You can pick these up every week as you come in. They're on the kiosks on the way in. And it's a place to take notes. There's reflection questions in there. And uh, those reflection questions are meant to, to help us take it to the next step and take it into our everyday lives. We're in this uh, series that started a few weeks ago where we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is a, a block of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew that begins in Matthew chapter 5 and runs through Matthew chapter 7, through the end of chapter 7. And we're calling it a good and beautiful God. And today we're looking specifically at verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5. So it's, the, it's actually the second block of teaching in this, uh, in this sermon. And we are spending a second week on it. So last week we started on those four verses, and this week we're going to finish it up. Finish it up. So a helpful summary of this passage, we talked about this last week, is that in this passage, Jesus is calling his followers to be in the world for the world, but not of the world. To be in the world for the world, but not of the world. And last week, we looked at the first two parts of that, being in the world, and then we looked at being for the world, and those actually go together. We're in the world for the world. And today, we're looking at that last part, but not in of the world. Not of the world. That's one of the most difficult challenges a follower of Jesus faces. And it's absolutely essential to our faith. And so if you find that challenging, if you don't find the challenging, maybe if you're following Jesus, you find that challenging. Let's just put it that way. David French, the senior editor of The Dispatch, which is an online um, news journal, and he's also a columnist for Time. He uh, wrote a piece recently for the National Review, and he talked about two prominent Christian influencers who renounced their faith last summer three weeks apart. I think it was in the summer. It may have been a little bit. He wrote this in the summer. And here's what one of those uh, influencers, one uh, worship leader out of Australia, another one, an American pastor and author. Uh, here's what the Australian worship leader wrote. He said, this is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send four billion people to a place? All because they don't believe. No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's just not for me. Now, French is really careful to say, um, I can't look into this guy's heart and I can't say what, why he's actually renounced his faith. I really can't say that. But um, I can say this. 
that little bit that he has there in his announcement doesn't ring true. He said, I, I, I read it and I, I go, what is this guy talking about? He said, if you're maybe kind of in and out of church and you go to churches that kind of just preach a therapeutic gospel and, and you're um, not really involved, yeah, maybe you would say that. But the reality is, if you are in the church like he is as a pastor within a church for years and years, he knows full well. We talk about these things all the time. These are the things that, that we have to answer for our young people. We have to answer it for ourselves. Uh, we have to answer for people who are skeptical. There's books written on this every year. People trying to answer these kinds of questions. He says, I don't know what's in his heart, but I know one thing for sure. And it is that it's hard to hold to Christian beliefs. It's hard to hold to something that the rest of society does not agree with. It's hard to do that, really hard to do that. And sometimes the pressure grows too great for some people. And the problem for most, he says, isn't that they don't get good answers. They're not hearing good answers to these kinds of questions. The problem, he says, is a lack of courage. He writes this, in my travels around the country, one thing has become crystal clear to me. Christians are not prepared for the social consequences of profound cultural shifts, especially in more secular parts of the nation. They're afraid to say what they believe. Not because they face the kind of persecution that Christians face overseas, because they're simply not prepared for any meaningful, adverse consequences in their careers or with their peers. I can't agree more because I'm well aware of what we as churches uh, concentrate on, how we train people, how we teach, what we prepare people for. And the reality is most Christians in most churches today aren't being prepared for meaningful adverse consequences for holding to beliefs that are contrary uh, to the culture. So let's look at our passage uh, today um, because it's not just a matter of courage. There are some other things that we need to look at as well. And so we're going to read the passage, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into today's sermon. So beginning in verse 13, after giving the Beatitudes, Jesus says this to his disciples. You, it's a very emphatic you, by the way, the way that it's written. Um, you don't capture it in English, but it's almost like you, yes, you. You, yes, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, yes, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's pray. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds and strengthen our lives so that we would live what God calls us to live. Um, this prayer is based on Ephesians chapter 1. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for the Holy Spirit who illuminates your truth. 
We ask that through your spirit, you would give us wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better. Open the eyes of our hearts. Use us for the sake of others and for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does God want us to impact our world? That's where we started last week. And in your outlines, you have um, Jesus calls us to be in the world, and Jesus calls us to be for the world. Number three, Jesus calls us to be not to be of the world. Uh, it's pretty obvious. It's, I mean, it's, it's not stated here. It's stated in other passages, but it's not stated here. It's just assumed here by the very metaphors that are being used that if you simply blend into the world, that if you share, um, basically just share most of the world's values and just live like most of the other people in the world, that if that's your life, you can't be salt and light. You have to be different to be salt and light. There has to be something different for that to happen. If you're different, if you're not different, Jesus actually says you become worthless as salt and light. And what the world's just going to do with you is just throw you out. You've done nothing for them. You're of no value to them. So this is truly hard. To be different is truly hard. But if you want to follow Jesus and you want to and I think most of us do, even though we struggle with it. We, we want to follow Jesus. We want to let the chips fall where they may. We really do. We want to be courageous people who let the chips fall where they may. We want to move forward even though we are afraid and even though we may be anxious about the consequences of living out our faith in school or in the workplace or on our sports teams. If that's you, if that's something you want, this is what it takes to be not of the world. We're going to look at part of that today. And so the first thing that it takes not to be of the world is, is training in discipleship. All right, so this is going to be a uh, Vince Lombardi moment here just for a few, about two minutes, all right? Remember, Vince Lombardi's famous for when he was trying to rebuild the Green Bay Packers. I think it was trying to rebuild the Green Bay Packers in the first day. As coach, he showed a football and he says, gentlemen... This is a football. <laughs> uh, the famous um, basketball coach, maybe the greatest basketball, college basketball coach of all time, John Wooden would spend uh, the very first minutes of the first practice with his new team teaching them how to tie their shoes. All right, so if what I'm about to say sounds really basic to you, uh, it's basic, but we just have to keep returning to it. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissions his disciples. And he says, this is what you as disciples do. And you have to understand that what he's telling them to do is something that just continues happening. As new disciples are made, this is their commission. When you become a disciple, this becomes your same commission. So he says, it says, at the end of Matthew, the same gospel, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, in there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go into all the world. And this is what you do. Make disciples. Baptize them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What else? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew is organized. The gospel, each, each gospel is organized in a different way. 
The Gospel of Matthew, and, and includes different stories from the life of Jesus, and there are themes that each Gospel has that other Gospels only touch on, but one particular Gospel will work on that particular theme. The teaching of Jesus is the theme in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's visually, I mean, if we could show you visually, it's, it, it's, it's, it's visual in that at the end of the story, these are the last verses, he says, I want you to teach, as you make disciples, teach them to do everything I've commanded. And then Matthew organizes the gospel into five distinct big chunks of Jesus' teaching. And so the Sermon on the Mount is only the first. And with each one, there is a theme that runs through it that each one gives you a, a, a teaching of Jesus, but it's also discipleship training. There's no doubt that this was written for discipleship training. This is what Jesus taught. And it doesn't have just what he taught. It has many of the other stories of what he did and the miracles and some of the things he would say along the way, the conversations he would have. But the blocks of teaching stand out. It's extremely important to realize that keeping... Now, now, Stop and step back for a moment, and I'll explain in a moment why I'm making this point. All right. It's extremely important to remember or to realize that keeping Christ's commands, as it says there, teach them to keep my commands, are not a way of getting right with God. Jesus is saying, this is how people become Christians. This is how people go from death to life. They keep my commandments. We're made right with God by his grace and through faith and not by our performance. All right, that's, that's basic stuff. We often talk about it as a door on an arduous trail. And so Christianity um, doesn't teach that you go through life and you go through difficulties and you're climbing this mountain metaphorical mountain and you get to the top of the mountain and you've you've lived the life you've made it and at the top is Jesus at a door and he opens the door and says you have done well <laughs> come into my heaven it's not Christianity it's every other religion in the world is not Christianity Christianity the door is at the very beginning and it's opened by God's grace and as we put our faith in what God has done for us it becomes ours. Only Jesus kept his commandments. None of us will keep all his commandments. Only Jesus personified the Beatitudes. None of us, no matter how long you live on this earth, are going to find yourself for the rest of your life personifying the Beatitudes. But here's the football moment. It's not enough to say, only Jesus lived this good and beautiful life, and I can't. It's not enough to say that. Jesus commands the Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount, actually show us how to live a good and beautiful life, a life of true and lasting happiness, a life of deep joy, as we journey with Jesus and with his people through life. This isn't the Sermon on the Mount is not just there to show us how far we fall short of the glory of God. It's there to also show us how to live a glorious life as we journey with Jesus. 
James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, uh, tells a story that I think can help us to some degree to understand the life of discipleship. And understand James Clear, as far as I know, is not a Christian. But this, this analogy is, is excellent because it's basic to life. It's just true. It was his freshman year in high school, and his basketball team had started out the year with a series of losses. They had not won a game. And one day in practice, the team was really struggling. And you could tell, he said, that their confidence was really low, like they just didn't think they were very good basketball players. And so their coach pulled them together, and he said something that he's never forgotten and stuck with him ever since then. He looked at them, and he says, confidence is just displayed ability. Confidence is just displayed ability. In other words, what he was saying, uh, Clear explains, if they wanted to become the type of team that stepped onto the court and believed that they could win a game, confidence, then they had to become the kind of team that displayed their ability to play basketball. No pep talk is going to overcome the fact that you go out there and you don't play very well. You have to display the ability to, de to develop some confidence. It didn't have to be in big ways. It could start by making a free throw. It could start by getting back on defense. It could start, he said, by boxing a man out or by grabbing a rebound. But if they displayed their ability, then the confidence would begin to build and the confidence would come. Up until that time, he says, he always assumed that confidence was just something you either had or you hadn't, you didn't have. You know, it's just like, well, right now we just don't have confidence. And this was a completely different way of thinking. If you could display your ability to do something, he says, whether, what was whether that was making a free throw or just extended into other parts of life, solving a math problem or selling a candy bar, then you could naturally become confident of doing it again. Your salesperson, it really helps to make a sale to build your confidence. <laughs> he had never thought about using his actions to drive his mindset. And this is what discipleship training is about. And it's, it's missed oftentimes by us as Christians. Where did his team have to display their ability? Just in practice. Keep shooting those free throws until, and get coached until you start making some free throws. Keep running down the court and getting into a defensive position in practice so that when you get to the game, it's just natural, it's, it's what you do. How do you display your ability? Again, in practice. You do it over and over again in practice. It's what, like what Pastor John talked about, the Peyton Manning Super Bowl, where they predicted rain. And so he started practicing all week, or the two weeks before the Super Bowl, he was practicing with a wet football. People asked him, well, was it tough to hold a wet football? I did it every day. It really wasn't. It just became natural. So Christian practices are that way. I mean, Christian practices, spiritual disciplines, whatever you want to call them, are ways, many times, of practicing, if, if, we're, if we're not willing to give up some time to read Scripture, are we going to give up anything for Jesus when it might bring adverse consequences? If we're not willing to serve using our spiritual gifts in our own church, 
are we going to serve someone who hates us, as Jesus said we're supposed to? Are we going to care about people when things get really, really difficult? If we, can't, if we don't practice, are we going to do it in the difficult moment? Now, James Clear talks a lot about not just confidence, he talks about identity, and this just, he's actually talking about the same thing. He's talking about identity. So if I say, and I believe truly in my heart, I'm a runner. I'm a runner. I believe that. But I never run. I'm delusional. Or get, getting there. If I say, and I believe, I'm a vegan but I eat eggs every morning for breakfast. <laughs> Something's wrong. <laughs> um, remember that belief part, you know, I might say because I want to look good, but if I actually believe it, but I'm constantly contradicting it. If I say I follow Jesus, and I believe I'm following Jesus, but I think and act basically just like everyone else around me, something's wrong. There's a disconnect there. We have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. One of, the, one of the questions is this. Am I taking steps, even small steps, to live like Jesus calls me to live? And by the way, that's all we can take are small steps. Those of you who just are so driven, I mentioned you week one of this series. Like, I read the Beatitudes, and you thought, that's my goal for this year. I'm going to accomplish that. <laughs> um, no, it all happens with small steps. Actually, even a better question is the second one. I think this is important, but the second one is even better. Am I taking steps, even small steps, to journey with Jesus and to learn from him how to live the way he calls me to live? It's personal. It's a relationship with him. Am I taking those steps? It's going to be in his power that I can live for him. Am I doing that? So if I'm going to be not of the world, it starts with discipleship training. Really basic there, discipleship training. Actually, Jesus wants us to live these values. He actually wants us to live these values. They're not an entrance requirement. He doesn't like, look like this every time we break them. We're walking with him in a relationship. There's forgiveness. There's reconciliation. There's all those things. If you put a bunch of guilt and all that kind of stuff, that's on you. It's not on Jesus. It might be on your parents. It might be on your church. <laughs> but if you're an adult here, let it go. Follow Jesus. He's not doing this. Not to be of the world is going to take discipleship training. Secondly, it's going to take courage. We talked about this a little earlier. I'm not saying, this is important, I'm not saying you have to be a courageous person. It's really important. Some of you eliminate yourself immediately. I'm not a courageous person. I'm not saying you have to be a courageous person. You don't have to be a courageous person to be a follower of Jesus. And it's clear from the scripture. I mean, one great example is Peter, who did not act courageously, but was a follower of Jesus, a prominent follower of Jesus. But to live by Jesus' values and practices, which are oftentimes contrary to the world's values and practices, it requires courage. It requires times when we do what Jesus said to do in spite of the fear. That's what courage is. Not about being a courageous person. It's doing what I need to do in spite of the fear. 
So from that article by David French, he says, C.S. Lewis famously said, I think this is in your outlines, famously said that courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point. Take whatever virtues of love, peacefulness, whatever. It's really at its testing point. Courage is there. In practical application, this means no person truly knows if he possesses any virtue until it is tested. Do you think you are loving? You know you truly love another person only when loving that person is hard, when it's tested. Do you think you're a truthful person? You know you're a truthful person only when you speak the truth when it hurts, when it can hurt you. What is it about following Jesus that requires courage? I don't think I have to answer that question for you, but I'll just give you a few examples and you can start, uh, you know, going from there. But if you work for a boss who values ruthlessness in order to win, you're not going to win any points with him or her if you are, as the Beatitudes say, a merciful person and a peacemaker. You're not going to win a whole lot. It, it's going to hurt you in terms of what that boss is saying to their boss, what's happening in your career. It's going to hurt you, even if you're succeeding in a lot of ways. If your workplace or your sports team or your particular class values and thrives tough talk and tough talk is filled with profanity and insults of other people, you're, you're, gonna have a hard, you're not going to win points with those people if you follow what Jesus says in the passage we're going to look at next week, where he says some really tough words about the words that we use, especially words we use about other people. If you hold to a biblical sexual ethic, which is reflected in another passage we're going to look at next week, uh, um, just comes a little bit after this one. You might actually be accused of hating others even if you don't, just because you disagree with them. You might be considered to be a hater. So, Jaylene Hinkle was on the U.S. national soccer team when she withdrew from the team. She made the team. So one of the best in the United States at her position. But she felt that she was being asked to endorse an unbiblical sexual ethic when the team decided to wear rainbow-colored numbers on their jerseys. Now, not all Christians would come to the same decision, and she doesn't even try to say, this is the only decision for a Christian, okay? This was her decision. But she said, I felt so convicted in my spirit that it wasn't my job to wear this jersey. I gave myself three days to just seek and pray and determine what God was calling me to do in this situation. If I never get another national team call up again, then that's just a part of his plan, and that's okay. She paid a price. She's willing to pay a price. She continues to pay a price because she plays professional soccer, and wherever she goes, there are people there who jeer her and, and boo her because of her stance. There are teams that have rejected her. She's tried out for professional teams, and they've said she's not really that good. And they know perfectly well that she's actually one of the best in her position in the world. But she doesn't fit the 
ethics of that team. It's clear, absolutely clear to everybody. Remember what I read earlier um, by David French. He said, many Christians are just afraid to say what they believe because they simply are not prepared for any meaningful adverse circumstances in their careers or with their peers. We're unprepared because we just lack preparation, discipleship, training. We don't understand the importance of courage, of pushing through, of we don't really uh, hold tightly in, I mean, practice in everyday life the reality of God's kingdom and that his kingdom is best and that the good and beautiful life is his way, not the way that we choose and not the way that our society chooses. So we're unprepared. The last thing that we need in order to not be of the world is um, we need brokenness and humility. And this is oftentimes missing in Christians who are seeking to influence. We saw an example of that last week. If you didn't, weren't here last week and you haven't watched it online, I want to encourage you to do that. But look what it says in the opening Beatitudes, um, getting in verse 3. This, this is... This is the epitome of brokenness and humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's, that's describing a broken person. Um, I think it was two weeks ago, yeah, that I told the story of Michael Wilkins on guard duty after a day of gleefully killing the enemy in Vietnam and the brokenness he felt as he reflected on the people, his comrades who were killed all around him and the hate that he saw on everyone's faces. He was having a Beatitudes moment. He was, he was broken. That's the only way that we can really influence the world. Someone said, I heard this in a podcast recently, the church is not supposed to be a club of good people telling other people how to live. It's a league of the guilty. Another way to put it would be a league of the broken. That's what we are, or we're not. We're not that. We're not called to impose our values on the world around us. We're called to influence by Christ's values. To shine a light, no matter what the cost might be. That's what we're called to. In another podcast that I heard last year, uh, the guest of the interviewer was talking about a debt collection agency that he had just visited. And he had visited because they had asked him to come and speak because he had featured them. He had been one of the companies that he had featured in his business book on word-of-mouth marketing. Now, this debt collection agency is just right outside of Green Bay, um, in a town outside of Green Bay. It is also um, a debt collection agency that almost exclusively focuses on the medical field. So they go to collect money from people who are having trouble paying their medical bills. In the medical field, this guy said, a hospital will usually hire two agencies, maybe two minimize losses, or maybe they compete and one of them gets it. I don't know, but they'll hire two. They'll give them both a contract, at least for a while. And um, they'll compete against each other to see who does better. 
This company, in head-to-head against other companies, wins 97% of the time against other debt collection agencies. They bring more money in 97% of the time. The thing that marks them off from every other agency is they actually have a stated goal that they try to measure. They, I mean, they actually, it's part of their culture. Their goal is to be ridiculously nice while making collections. Ridiculously nice. And being ridiculously nice, they win 97% of the time. 60% of the people who work for them are people from whom they once collected. And so the podcast interviewer said, oh, so, so the company goes after people. I mean, with that value, they go after people who they once collected from in order to get them to be a part of their company. He goes, nope, that's what you'd think, but that's not how it is. The people from whom they once collected ask to work with for them. They pursue the company. It's really what the Beatitudes describe. Um, it's really what Jesus is trying to get at when he says, being in the world for the world, but not of the world, not of the world. Be, instead, being poor in spirit, instead, being humble, instead, being p- people who mourn, people who hunger for something they don't have, a righteousness that they know they're falling short of. A league, the league of the guilty, league of the broken, who've been called by Jesus, who are walking through life with him, who are forgiven, who are being shown a new way to live, a kingdom life, meaning God's rule type of life, God's ruling in their lives, and then seeking to be salt and light in a world full of decay and darkness.